What's up? This is Founders Talk. I'm Adam Stachowiak, and here on Founders Talk, I share one-on-one conversations I have with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, their lessons learned, and what it takes to build and run their business. Today, I'm joined by Guillermo Rauch, founder and CEO of Vercel. We talk about building the Vercel platform and what it's taking to make the web faster and what's enabling Fernandez to do their best work, his framework for leading as a CEO, and how everything for Vercel is built on develop, preview, ship. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get 100,000 credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Render. Render is a unified platform to build and run all your apps and websites with FreeSSL, a global CDN, private networks, and auto deploys from Git. They handle everything from simple static sites to complex apps with dozens of microservices. There are a ton of use cases for Render, but the sweet spot I want to focus on right now is how they're able to offer a better, more streamlined approach to hosting modern apps at a better price point. For example, Heroku is known to be quite expensive at scale, and alternatives like AWS and Kubernetes require significant time and management overhead for early-stage startups. Render is built for modern applications and offers everything you need out of the box. One-click scaling, zero downtime deploys, built-in SSL, private networking, managed databases, secrets and configuration management, persistent block storage, and infrastructure's code. Render is powerful and it's easy to use, Automate your cloud hosting with Render at render.com slash changelog. The best part, our listeners get $100 in credit, and all that begins at render.com slash changelog. Again, render.com slash changelog. Guillermo, I've been so excited to get you on this show in particular. I know we've talked many times over your software career. I think five years ago, you actually came on the channel with me just solo on 213, episode 213. This is early days of Zite, early days of, and it was brand new days of Hyperturn, for example. And then now, and we talked a lot about Zite and where you were at then, but it's been a while. We've been you know, paying attention to what you're doing. And obviously, you know, I'm a big fan of your work and what you've been doing. Spent time with you at Zeit Days a couple of years back. Just really a big fan of your work. And so I'm so glad to have you here on Founders Talk. So welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. You've been there since the very beginning, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean, some would say that the, you know, that the business, the changelog is... An institution, and I feel like that's kind of true because we've been around for, as a business, for 12 years, since 2009. I think we've just had timing, good luck, etc., and the good fortune just to be there for so many awesome stories. And I think, you know, you have an interesting story because, obviously, you know your, your story better than I do, but you started to develop as a software developer very young. You started your entrepreneurship fairly young as well, from what I understand, and just like, I've been paying attention to what you've been doing for years. And it just seems like where you're at now as Vercel, as the company and as, as an individual is just layered on of like all these layers of what you've done and learned over the years. And you, you know, some people will like sort of like deplete their career capital bank account for, for so to speak, you know, like start over somewhere else. It seems like you've just sort of like 
laser focus on like iteration over the years. How would you, how do you frame that? Is that true? And how do you frame that if it's true? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of progress happens by building in layers or stages. So for me, going back to even the Mutuals days, it felt like we're working on the foundations of, okay, JavaScript is going to be a very important part of our future. Let's build a layer on top of what came with JavaScript in the browser. Okay, now we have a library. Okay, let's build a layer on top. Obviously, we ended up settling on React as our engine, but okay, let's build a layer on top next. Okay, develop is part of a life cycle. Vercel's motto is develop, preview, ship. Okay, so what's the next layer on top of that Next.js developer experience? Okay, it's previewing and collaborating with your team. Okay, what's the next layer on top? It's shipping to your customer. Okay, what's the next layer on top? Well, it's measuring that whatever you've shipped is performing for your customer. So we launched Next.js and Vercel Analytics. So it does feel like we're building in layers and it feels like a meaningful set of progressions. Mm. You know, the the one thing I think about is just that path to being a founder. So many people will see somebody's success today and they just don't know how they got there. You know, I'm talking about like everyone else who's paying attention to Vercel and to the hockey stick of Next.js, for example. And it's like all these fun things. They just think like, wow, they just, you know, they just arrived. <laughs> and it's difficult to see all those iterations. Like you mentioned, Mutools and what's the next layer develop, preview, ship, all those things that become the building blocks for Vercel as it is today. The easy question is, how did you begin, essentially? But like, when did you get that possibility of creating software and iterating software, but then building a business around it? When did that begin for you? I've always been intrigued by the concept of startups. My first startup was in a, at a young age, even just going to school and trying to think about little businesses that I could do, even before I had any technical knowledge. I've always been intrigued with the idea of scalability, especially as I first arrived in the San Francisco Bay Area. Okay, not only can you build something, but that something can almost become an engine, mm -hmm. a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways. Because as you mentioned, once you hit a certain level of scale, there is that feeling of inevitability or some people call it overnight success that comes with it. But the other thing is that it's always been for me about addressing pains that I felt myself in the past and, and scratching itches and trying to sort of unleash a lot of the potential that better tools and a better developer experience would create on the world. So starting a business, starting my own company was a very natural next step from there. I felt like I, I could empathize very strongly with the customer. I also believed in the customer. So I think there's an interesting story here. And so far, we're very focused on front-end developers. As Vercel evolves, the workloads that it's supporting are not just front-end. If your server rendering is that front-end or is that back-end, if you have an API page in XJS, is that front-end or is it back-end? But the front-end developer defined as the person that is working on the UI layer, the person that's working right next to the layer that serves the customer, the person is writing JavaScript or TypeScript. In many ways, it feels like we bet on them. We believed in them. Mm. Because going back many years, you know, I would be confronted with the idea, well, does JavaScript make any sense? That's a toy. You know, Brendan Igo says, 
first they said uh, it couldn't work, then we fixed it. Then we, they said it couldn't be fast, then we fixed that too with V8, Spider Monkey, <laughs> and many th- other things. Then uh, they said, I don't know, it cannot do things like native. Then we layered on WebAssembly. So we made a bet in that customer. We made a bet in, in that this set of tools would matter. And I think that bet worked out. And, and I think it's we're still in the early innings of that. Yeah, it's interesting to be in the early innings and be how many years? I want to say Zite was founded in 2015. So Zite is the previous name of, of your company which is now called Vercel as of April, 2020. Well, that's uh, six years, right? I mean, how can you be in the early innings six <laughs> years deep? Well, that's the thing, right? Uh, I was just reading this incredible tweet about how how old companies were when their most significant innovations came to market. You know, like you look at the iPhone hmm. and these companies are like teenagers or young adults. They're decades old. I see. That really resonated, I think, of course, like we, we created Next.js a year in, right? So I think it was October 2016 that we published it. It still very much feels like it's a young project to us in, in how much we still have to accomplish in terms of making the web faster, making a better developer experience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same time, when we look at deploying edge computing and, and just making things more dynamic and instantaneous, all over the world, very much in the early days as well. So these things are in many ways infrastructure. I remember one time I used the word front-end infrastructure, which I borrowed from Facebook because the team that works on Rig is a front infrastructure team. And someone was like, wait, front-end requires infrastructure? So going back to like that asymmetrical nature of the bet that we made, which is that, hey, these technologies are gonna matter tremendously in the future. And, you know, along the way, there's been some developers or some CTOs or whatever that have been skeptical in the value of these technologies. But now it's become really clear that with Google, for example, ranking you by your core web vitals and performance and a lot of other innovations like TypeScript, like this is taking the world by storm and that at the end of the day, we are still in the very early days. What's interesting about this focus of yours is this in the front end, really, and that developer type, despite server-side rendering or APIs skewing the line of front end or not, totally is this idea of a feedback loop, right? It's right there in your tagline, develop, preview, ship, right? For sure. That is a feedback loop. You develop an idea, right? You preview that. Does it meet what I think it should meet? Does it solve the customer's problems I think it should solve? Yep. Let's ship it and find out. And then rinse and repeat. That seems so... Easy. I mean, like, it just seems so easy to think like that, but not everybody gets that idea. And I think you've been so focused on that for so long. It's astounding. Yeah, I think what's happening, too, and the reason that front end matters so much is that the complexity is significant, but the tools are getting so good. Not just code tools, but low code and no code tools, Mm. which we support on the Vercel platform because we have a number of platforms that expose a GUI to these technologies underneath. So, so as I mentioned, it's turtles all the way down. We're seeing the, the rise of all these tools that compile down to Next.js and Vercel pages behind the scenes. But the end user is facing a GUI type interface or they're writing a Notion document. And then all of a sudden they have a website that has been optimized for the best possible performance 
that hiring hundreds or thousands of developers would have gotten you. So what really what we're seeing, and this is why front matters so much, is this is where the value is. This is the cover letter. This is the presentation to your business, whether it's found through a Google search, whether it's found through an Instagram ad because you just launched your e-commerce business, whether it's invisible because of the power of APIs, we see so much traffic that is robot generated right today on the internet. But this is literally the entryway into everything. And I continue to think that the web will continue to become the entryway to everything. Mm. And that's the right bet to make, I think. And it's been super rewarding so far. This idea of no code, low code, you say you support it. What are your big idea thoughts on, I suppose, no code, low code today, 2021 to a few years from now? How How is this going to change? Give me some sort of prediction. What are your thoughts? I think that we'll continue to coexist and thrive and ideally built in the same layer. So no code and low code have existed for years and years and years as throwaway strategies, right? Because you would start, you know, the change the outcome and it's just an idea. Yeah. You want to put up a quick banner. GoDaddy would let you do it. It's like, buy your domain and we'll host a very simple page for you that says that something awesome is coming. And you might use that because you just thought of the name. The change is an epic name. Keeps it easy. And you're like, wait, why, why am I going to sit down and develop? This thing is offering me to just like write down a tagline, boom. But later on, you're building a real business. You're concerned with appealing to your customer segment who is sensitive to you know, design details and performance. And they want an intuitive UI. And you're adding dynamism that is coming from the data source of where you're publishing your audio files and descriptions and viewers and comments. So you throw away the no-code, low-code thing. I think that's going to change quite dramatically in the next 10 years. I think you're not going to throw it away because the no-code, low-code, and full-code solution are going to build in the same front-end infrastructure. Mm. We're starting to see this with platforms that understand React components, and they build even on top of the rendering engine of the browser. So like, hey, you're modifying and designing a component visually. Or you're modifying and designing a section for an e-commerce store for a promotion, and you're part of the business team for a certain region of this e-commerce business, and you don't know the code, but you're reutilizing, remixing, and working on top of the components that the front-end developer team prepared in collaboration with the design team and accessibility experts to ensure that this component system represents the brand and performs well, and it looks good. Mm. So as these teams continue to collaborate more and more closely, which is basically a big theme for us, is you know enabling everyone to collaborate on top of the web, not just you know the experts. So we're going to see that what you created visually is not going to be a temporary thing. It's going to eat more and more into different sections or pages or even entire subdomains or entire domains of your business. It's not going to be the only thing, but it's definitely going to continue to grow. And if they share that infrastructure, it's going to be a non-regrettable decision for most companies. When you look at it from that lens, it's easier to see the bigger picture because I think people see it as a replacement. And you sort of said they're different facets of the same thing, and it's not going to replace it. And 
I think of like no code and low code options to say, you know, something super close to you with Next.js, for example, Next.js Live, that's an on-ramp. So when we talk about, you know, lowering the barrier of entry, which is one of your core principles, at least noted by your most recent uh, round of funding, congratulations, by the way, here just a few months back, $102 million, Series C, big congrats on that. You put out three principles. You said that these are the promises we made with this investment we're going to do. You said build the SDK for the web, which is Next.js, lower the barrier of entry, which is essentially Next.js Live, and focus on the end user, which essentially you've been doing your whole career. Yeah. But when you put that kind of tool, Next.js Live out there, and you put it out there in that way, in a, in quotes, no code, low code scenario, what you're doing is you're, you're diversifying who can play in the game. Totally. Right? Because to be a software developer, it's so skewed. Almost everyone comes with this badge of imposter syndrome. I'm sure, you know, despite you being CEO of Vercel and all your accomplishments, I'm sure that in the last week you've had imposter syndrome to some degree, maybe not massively, but maybe a little bit, maybe a lot. Who knows? <laughs> Point is, is that like, who is a developer? Yeah. I don't want to say you're not a developer. You are a developer because why draw that line? Right. This discipline essentially this opportunity of no code, low code, and, and having that kind of foresight like you just played out is an on-ramp for so many who for sure. don't have a CS background or don't have, you know, in quotes, a real developer title or whatever it might be. It's an entry point. What do you think about that? Yeah. At the end of the day, I think a developer is anyone who develops. And I think right. it's our responsibility as those who work on tools and infrastructure and guidelines even to ensure that anyone can develop. It's like anybody can cook in Ratatouille. So That's right. Next.js Live for us is the first approach in terms of how quickly can you begin editing a site, right? How quickly can I make even a small contribution to a Next.js project? When you look at what it takes to just get started developing something that already exists, right? Like things that people have been already working on for years, just getting started on, okay, I want to make a quick change. I want to learn how it works. I want to understand what components are available in the system. It's a daunting task. In my blog post, I, I quoted Kelsey Hightower talking about like that weekend or that day they were looking at helping someone learn programming. And the amount of time it took just to get the environment up and running was daunting. And it was eating into whatever cycles of creativity and willpower you had for the actual task of developing. So it's almost like in this industry, we have the work and then we have the meta work. Any second or minute or hour that goes into preparing your development environment is meta work. Mm. Every second you spend on improving the experience for your customers, adding new features, optimizing performance, reorganizing content, creating new content, that's the real work. So Next.js Live will spin up a Next.js project, whether from a template or an existing one, in seconds. And it'll run all the tooling directly inside the web browser in a native fashion. It doesn't even require emulation. And on top of that, it layers on collaboration. So you can comment or point out things to folks in real time. You can even peer program with it because you can navigate a certain page and see, okay, like 
what's the deal here with this problem or that problem? So I think this trend will continue in terms of blurring the lines between consumption and creation because the very web browser is able to do this, right? Like this is an incredible thing about the web, right? The thing that you're using to consume is the same thing that you can use to create. And that's unique. Yeah, That's what gets people going with the web. The browser has this hidden IDE if you do the right keyboard incantation, right? Yeah. Whereas you look at other platforms and it's just all about consumption. Mm. Or you look at the terminal and yeah, like all of that is about creation, but like let's try to figure out, you know, how long it takes someone to get up and running with that. Downloading VS Code, downloading Node, downloading this, downloading that. So we're very excited about where Next.js is headed, but also the web is headed and all these tools that are literally allowing everybody to develop. And we're seeing this movement happen. I mean, it's been a slow movement towards it. We see automation everywhere, essentially. We see it in infrastructure, build pipelines, all sorts of places. And recently, Codespace was announced by GitHub. GitPod's been out there for two years. They're open source. Would you say that Next.js Live is similar or in competition with them? You know, where do you place Next.js Live in comparison to, say, GitHub Codespaces or GitPod or other essentially web IDE enabled things? Yeah, so the main distinction that I see that is a key component of Next.js's future is that we're using the browser as a platform, right? So Next.js Live doesn't require any VM running. It doesn't require a Linux operating system hidden somewhere in the cloud, which gives it major scalability. So the next billion developers could use Next.js Live and will not need any additional resources other than their local computer, even offline. Hmm. So that's a part of it. But the other thing is that Next.js is headed in this direction also towards edge execution. So when you want to server-side render your pages today, we're relying today on Linux as well to be sort of the under-the-hood operating system and hypervisor and so on. But we're kind of getting to the limits of what that technology can do in terms of performance, especially cold start performance in the serverless world where you you might go to a page that has not been booted very frequently or it's a new page that has just been created and we have the demand to render it dynamically, instantaneously. So what we're seeing is this symmetry also at the edge where browser APIs and V8 isolate style technology will be the one that will render your future pages as well. So in some ways, is we're, we're reconfiguring the cloud to just be web browsers everywhere. The development lifecycle happens in the browser or mostly in the browser, and then the edge execution is basically a cloud headless browser. You can imagine it that way, that it's pre-rendering your page instead of putting that workload on the client device. That's profound. So Codespaces, I believe, uses VMs. Gitpod, I believe, uses containers. And Next.js is simply web browser. a headless browser to APIs, essentially. Yeah, it's, it's just your web browser. So very much like how every page is already editable if you open the dev tools, right? There is no need with how awesome the web platform has gotten to actually require more technology than that. 
And it has this incredible advantage that we've arrived at the same realization when it comes to serverless and edge computing. We just need JavaScript plus some of the browser APIs to render your pages. And we gain massive efficiencies from that. So I think we're going to see this massive efficiencies happening for the cloud and for your own local development. Mm -hmm. You said that you started Next.js a year after founding Zite. So that's 2016. I think from my perspective, it seems like in the last several years, I've heard Next way more often than the years prior to that. And that's just maybe naturally how entropy works in the world or how scaling works with a product. But it seems like Next is used by just everyone. And it seems like it's Vercel's secret sauce to to the scale you've you've reached. Not the only piece to the sauce, but a critical component to reaching the scale you've gotten to. Yeah, I would say that the cloud had developed itself in a very agnostic and unbundled way before, right? So you would hire AWS. I think this is even true for GitHub, right? And this is why Codespaces requires this very agnostic VM as well as its engine. Because they tell you, you can do everything you want. So that increases the addressable space to lots of potential inputs and lots of potential outputs. I think what's interesting about Vercel is it's narrowing it down to the domain of literally publishing pages on the internet, right? And I think that DNA was right there in Next.js when we looked at React and we're like, okay, this is missing the pages folder. Yeah. And it's missing the pages abstraction. Like, where's the page? We're building web pages here. <laughs> yeah. And kind of the weird twist of fate of single page applications that eventually didn't pan out. But there was this perception that we're almost going to leave pages behind. So I think what's interesting about Vercel is that it's constrained the inputs further. It's saying, okay, you're building, you're developing pages and you're publishing pages. It turns out that, you know, that is akin to the addressable internet at large because there's just so many things that can be expressed with that abstraction. Mm -hmm. For example, when we introduce API routes, that is just simply create an API folder and now every file in that folder becomes a, a serverless function that we run at the edge for you. So when we constrain those inputs, we're like, okay, the frameworks have to be frameworks that produce pages. So it's no longer arbitrary programming language that opens up a server and can do you know everything in there. It's Next.js or frameworks like it. So we're seeing a lot of success also with Nuxt and SvelteKit and newcomers into the space. So what happens next is that when you look at the preview phase, we've built a build pipeline that also optimizes for this. So it's not that our build pipeline can't, for example, technically run tests or do other things that you would do, like build, you can't build Chromium in it. So we made a lot of automations and optimizations in the build pipeline for also that purpose. And our platform is well integrated into the frameworks. And then when it comes to shipping, we did the same thing again. So for example, something that happens when you ship to Vercel is that we can roll and revert without downtime instantly. I remember when I first saw containers, I also got excited. But then I looked at what reverting a server in the cutting edge Kubernetes experience was like, 
And it was like, I looked at companies, I looked at all the options and it was daunting and it was just slow. I was like, whoa, but that's just reverting a set of pages on the internet. It cannot be that hard. It turns out that when we narrowed our addressable space in our domain, we found all this incredible, not just optimizations, but newfound powers and newfound efficiencies for our customers that you know, now they take for granted, which is awesome. This episode of Founders Talk is brought to you by Auth0. Auth0 is a for developers, by developers identity platform built for the cloud era. They secure billions of logins every year. Identity is the front door of every user interaction and the login experience can make or break a user's first impression. Identity and authentication is never a set it and forget it thing. That means when teams decide to roll their own, they are taking on the full burden of constantly evolving industry standards, customer expectations, and data breach tactics, and they often don't have the time, expertise, or resources to meet those needs. This takes away from critical time needed to innovate and to improve their core product. Auth0 has solved this problem for every developer to give teams their time back and to make applications more secure. With Auth0 security, compliance, and industry standards, they're always up to date. Developers are free to provide the login options their users want with the security their application demands. Make login Auth0's problem, not yours. Learn more at Auth0.com. Again, Auth0.com. I see that is a trend line for you is is your focus on the customer experience. I forget where I saw it, but I'm going to paraphrase what you said. You you said that there's essentially two customers when it comes to the web or Versa. I can't recall the exact context, but it was like the developer and then the thing the developer is making for the customer. Totally. And that your focus is not just simply on the dev experience. And we hear this a lot, like uh, dev experience must be amazing, et cetera, et cetera. That's true for sure, because you need to create a technology or a framework or a paradigm that's that can be adopted by software developers that can be understood, that can be taught, that can be, et cetera. But then the thing you make also has to be at the forefront, which is where I love your perspective. And this is kind of where I want to understand more so where you're at now, CEO-wise, to the originator of where a lot of where Vercel is at now, because you started... I want to know more about how the company began, but where I'm trying to get to is your focus, your obsessive focus on not just the developer experience, but the customer experience that is the result of what the developers make. And so I kind of want to understand, one, help me dig and unpack that more so. Yeah. But then from the lens of like, okay, back to the early days of Zite when it was called Zite and not Vercel, how you played a role in leading that and sort of where you're at now as a CEO, like how does your... How is your involvement in product today in comparison to, say, six years ago when you began, for example? For sure. Help me understand that obsessive focus and how you play the role day-to-day and maybe how you began. For sure. How we think about the company and its evolution actually relates very much to how we thought about designing Next.js in some ways. Because I remember when we introduced that concept of pages, one of the things that I remember telling folks is Next.js provides team scalability, I called it. 
We didn't stop at DX. In fact, the DX of s- single page applications in React was pretty darn great at the time. But I focused on other aspects that a lot of folks, I think, can miss. One was team scalability. I mentioned we have per page code splitting, which we ended up you know, improving dramatically and changing a lot of it over time. But the idea still holds that if you're working on page A and you are a team and another team is working on page C, they should be able to fearlessly iterate on their respective areas of the system without hurting or encumbering the other team. So it was about creating a framework for not just end user performance, DX, but also the scalability of the organization that made the decision to use it. I remember interviewing, and I'll get into how my process works with customers. Like I remember interviewing a engineering manager from a very famous shoe company that associates themselves with high-performance athletes. And I remember asking them, what do you love the most about Next.js? Their answer was, any developer gets onboarded into this thing, they open the folder, and they basically understand how the whole thing works by just staring at the file system structure. They can see that <laughs> we have a page for the product description, we have a page for the categories, we have a page for the search, and this is how we organize our storefront, which is responsible for lots and lots and lots of sales every year. So the way that I think about our company, I think a lot about, first of all, picking the right fitness function. If this company gets inherited in decades by a completely different set of people, would they be able to take it to its right conclusion regardless of who came before? Well, I think that has happened for a lot of amazing corporations. I think they have to have the right focus. They have to have the right fitness function. So if our fitness function continues to be the end user performance and the the success of the business at large that picks our technology, I think we'll do well because we'll be able to work backwards to the technology, to the right framework, to the right technique, to the right set of best practices, to the right analytics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a lot in terms of evolutionary systems. And that's where the phrase fitness function really comes from is a simple pathway to determining are we doing the right thing or are we not? And also by how we experiment, right? Like we can launch lots of experiments and we can ask ourselves if it, you know, contributed to that. So on on the other hand, I think we over the years had the opportunity to learn in what ways is our technology 10 times better than what currently existed. And that was really interesting and and a, a really huge learning lesson for me because I started Next.js saying, okay, we're gonna pre-render and dynamically server render because it's great for SEO and it's great for performance. And the technology was positioned as like, well, it works for absolutely everything in the world. Awesome, it's a universal touring machine. You can do anything. Over time, it turned out that those qualities of the framework and the platform, for example, ended up being great for everybody, but 10 times better or even more, for example, customers in the e-commerce space. And it's really interesting to reflect on this, right? Because their needs fit what we offer extremely well. One example I was reading today, folks are spending more hours 
on Amazon.com than Walmart. If you count all their physical locations, all their web properties, et cetera. The e-commerce players of the world today, not all of them were born in the web. Not all of them were born online. Not all of them invented the cloud and data centers and EC2 and S3. So on one side, they're, they're playing catch up. They have no time to create front infrastructure teams. It's not a differentiator for them at this point. Well, that's meta work for them, right? Yeah, exactly. Wouldn't that be meta work for Walmart to build less me- <laughs> EC2 or AWS? Less meta work. And then on the other hand, it turns out that all these primitives that we're thinking about with Next.js, like great SEO, great performance, great this, great that. Yeah, sure. Like they're, they're great for my blog. They're great for RouchG.com. I'm really proud that it has a lighthouse, almost 100 or whatever. But for Walmart, who actually chose Next.js, it's a good, good metaphor. That is kind of the, the difference between being extremely competitive, even potentially overtaking, or spending all their time on, in meta work. So we learned a lot about what are the customers that we're going to make those tremendous differences for. We learned a lot about how. We learned a lot about communicating to them in ways that they can understand across all the layers of the stack, whether you're a junior engineer, you're a senior engineer, you're an engineering manager, you're a CTO, you're a VP of engineering. But also, as we spent time talking about no-code and low-code, there are so many people that want to contribute to these websites, right? Like, you want to be able to go in and like feature a product. You want to add a promotion. Yep. You want to theme it for Christmas <laughs> coming in November and December, right? Like, there's all these awesome things that you can do that, as I mentioned earlier, they will be developer-mediated. The developer will create the right schematisms or components or places in which you can add value. But then they're going to open the those frameworks up for other folks to contribute. So we learned about that as well, right? We learned about what is the right way that you can empower and enable the entire company on top of this Next.js and Vercel transformation. So these are all things that, you know, I sometimes joke to people that like, I use words that I would have never used in the past, just because like the lingo, I expanded it really, because I continue to use our products. My framework for my time is, at least ideologically, is spend one third of my time with customers and understanding what their requirements are and, and pitfalls and whatnot. And obviously a lot of my team does that, but it's always great to, to deal with the escalations or the requirements that sort of are pressing about the future and so on. One third with my own team. And I always try to make that if I'm going to err in one direction, spending a lot of time with my team and with our customers, ideally together, where you know we think about how we can do better as I mentioned, if the company is almost like a framework, how can we improve that framework? How can we have a better experience for working at Vercel, for accessing information, for accessing data, for learning new things, etc., and for understanding also the priorities and the philosophies that drive our business forward, which actually relates into the last third, which for me is the ability to drive change. So we're going through this right now, right? We're, as I mentioned, we're going through the transformation, in my opinion, of the entire cloud in terms of its ability to render pages very efficiently with browser-like technology. 
the future is going to look similar in many ways because we're at the end of the day still distributing pages throughout the world and distributing content but it's also going to be very different from the past it's going to be much more dynamic much more instantaneous even less of a operations burden for folks to scale and driving this change when you've already succeeded in many ways sometimes can be challenging that's why you have to spend time because you go through your own internal layers of innovation as well this happened to us with nextjs many times already where nextjs started fully server rendered and then we realized well folks also need this beauty of edge caching that comes from static generation and later incremental static generation. So we kind of invented new technologies that in some ways almost seemingly went against the previous wave, right, at each layer. So driving that change is very important because, first of all, it's driven by customer demand. Our customers are always saying, like, how can I be faster? How can I be more dynamic? How can I either sell more or how can you help me evolve faster and iterate faster? So I spend a lot of time driving that change and helping others drive it and internalize it and and think of it and challenge it and discuss it and, and collaborate on it. I love that. You're spending time with the people that matter really most, which is first, I'm not sure if this is prioritized, customers and then team. I don't think it really matters, honestly, so I'm not asking you to choose. But you know, those are the two that matter most because you need a strong team and you need to satisfy the customer's needs. And when it comes down to it, you need to be the person leading the company to drive that change. If it's if your team's doing something wrong or there's a process that's not right, you need to understand that deeply and you can't get that understanding unless you're spending time with them. For sure. And still that ability to drive that change. Can you give me any examples where you've spent this time with the customer or with, with the team, aside from the yeah. the mention you just mentioned around Next.js, but like maybe a the shoe company you mentioned is anything. I don't know. I'm just <laughs> teasing out something. I'll give you an, a very interesting example. So sure. a lot of my customer stories relate to understanding why they're succeeding or what else could be doing to, for them to succeed and in what ways they're not succeeding, right? One thing that I noticed recently is Next.js and Vercel are incredibly organic. Yeah, you actually alluded to this where like you just hear of it and you see it pretty much everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. So that actually has a disadvantage in some way in that you're not there to witness the internal process or processes that led to its decision of being there. That can even create an interesting pressure, like easy come, easy go, right? If it's so easy to choose it, would it be easy to choose the next thing, right? So I spent a lot of time actually reverse engineering Okay, why is this customer, why did they choose it? What are the things that stood out to them? Which in many ways is almost like a synchronization or calibration process, right? Because maybe they think, well, this one feature really is awesome. But then you talk to customers like, well, I couldn't care less about that feature. Actually, I'm really interested in that other feature, right? Yeah. So it's that calibration process. And then also understanding, okay, like uh, as we just talked about, if my real goal is to help their customer, I most definitely need to talk to them to understand what problem they're trying to solve for their end user and how we can help them. So a good example from recently, I tweeted a DTC, direct-to-consumer e-commerce company, 
broke down their monolith. So they, they had this sort of monolithic build of their storefront coupled to a particular backend. And they decided to replatform on top of Next.js and Vercel without making very drastic changes. So this is not like we're going to reinvent the company type of thing. It was more like, okay, let's replatform and see how it goes. And they knew that if this project succeeded, it was going to yield better developer experience. So obviously developers were motivated to do this. But everyone, especially in e-commerce, and this is why I love that cohort of our business, is that you do have a pulse that's very clear on your ultimate performance of like, are we selling a lot of shoes or are we selling a lot of chairs? Right. Feedback loop is tighter. Very tight. So it was amazing to hear from them that ever since the first day that they started A-B testing it in production, they couldn't believe their eyes when they were looking at the dashboards, which reflected what ultimately became a 16% lift in sales just from replatforming. And this is the kind of confirmation in customer story that Believe it or not, like sometimes people just, just knock on your door to tell you. You have to actually ask them, like, hey, like, mm. how are you succeeding? And also, like, folks sometimes just don't tell you they're not succeeding, right? Like, hey, like, we're thinking about ditching the web and moving to right. AMP. Bad news. Next, yes, is not for us. Yeah, yeah. We're going native. We're going native or we're going to AMP or whatever, right? So yeah. I also want to understand those. So it's such a large space that obviously you have to like kind of pick your battles, especially now with my time being less available. But I try to also understand folks at the different levels. Like I still talk to the developer that will pick the tool. Recently, we organized a little meetup with the hackers of the future from Hack Club who came to our office and told us about the ways that they're learning about the web and what their perceptions of the technology and the web are. I also obviously talk to our enterprise customers and I talk to prospects. So it's nice to kind of have a view that's as broad as possible of who's out there. Because obviously we're all impacted by technology. I also sometimes, you know, like I'm curious about what my mom thinks about the web. Like, are you annoyed at, <laughs> at GDPR banners? Like, do things load very slowly in Argentina? <laughs> you know, like the world is so global, just like the web, and we're all in it and we're all in it together. So it's, it's awesome to, uh, to just kind of get the sense from everybody. I'm glad you explained this framework because, again, a principle of yours, it seems so simple to develop, to preview, to ship, to spend time with customers, to spend time with your team and to remain to have the ability to drive change. I think that those are those are like core tenets to someone's character like yours that really they're complex, but they're just so simple. Yeah, I think simplicity continues to be. Very hard to attain, for sure. Because yeah. I remember actually the day that we came up with the motto, like, I know that there's been a pattern of startups saying, like, oh, we do A, B, and C, and whatnot. Like, it's it doesn't seem novel. It doesn't seem interesting. But I remember when we're talking a lot in, in a room about, okay, like, how do we explain the, the thing? Like, what do we say? Do we say it's a front-end framework Next.js and a edge compute platform that's serverless? Like, it's just lingo and like how we make it approachable and and yeah how how can you make it a framework for example the other day and so i love frameworks the other day i was uh, talking to a customer prospect that was very very driven by security requirements right like for this person you could have that developer experience that where every page change takes you three hours to reflect 
and the end user experience could be you can load one page a day, but their priority was security, right? So they, they would be okay with that. Yeah. And this is what's fun too about understanding what where everyone's priorities are, what what everyone's own goals and, and fitness functions are for, for technology, right? And and I was able to illustrate how we think about security through that life cycle. I say, well, on the develop phase, Next.js is introducing conformance for security to stop you early on in, in even before you push, you're not going to push something that's bad for security. React has great support for XSS and it has this blocks you from SQL injections or easy or oh, sorry, HTML and JS injections being easy and whatnot. And we're adding trusted types support for even better XSS protection. Then on the preview side, we've invested tremendous amounts in making our builds completely isolated, zero trust environments. They get disposed after every build complete. So we're able to like, okay, like give you kind of a sense of even what the product does while it talks to you about security. And then when we ship the same at runtime, we have this incredible isolation primitives for executing arbitrary compute in a complete sandbox. So through that framework that I can use to explain the product, I was able to also explain security. And I can also, you know, maybe if I'm talking to an investor, I might use it to explain the total addressable market, right? Because they say, well, developers, we have 13.7 million JavaScript developers, and that's growing. There is 550 million Excel users. So we can say, okay, developers could grow a lot and will, right? Previewing opens up collaboration, right? So we have customers like Washington Post that use the preview URLs primarily to collaborate with editors, non-technical folks, user testing, all kinds of reviews. So now Preview has opened up the addressable market to like everyone who wants to collaborate on a website, which is obviously a lot of people. And then shipping, you know, as I mentioned earlier, our goal would probably be, you know, the we think the top 10,000 Alexa websites will always have top-notch engineering teams that work with developer tools. But then the entire rest of the world will access websites that have been created through no code or low code. So you can argue, you know, there's a very addressable segment there, which is the entire internet. But realistically speaking, you know, like you look at uh, the Alexa and, and you find a ton of websites that, that need our help. So mm-hmm. it's a good framework. And, and as I mentioned, to summarize how I spend my time, I spend my time thinking about frameworks, not just for the code, but frameworks for how the company can operate and how we can scale our approachability to customers and users alike. This episode is brought to you by Gitpod. Gitpod lets you spin up fresh, ephemeral, automated dev environments in the cloud in seconds. And I'm here with Johannes Landgraf, co-founder of Gitpod. Johannes, GitHub made a big announcement recently with Codespaces, validating that it is now time for dev teams to consider what automated dev environments can do for them. What do you have to say to that? I'd say welcome to the party, GitHub and Microsoft. (laughs) No, honestly, we were very excited because it validated to the developer community what we have been pioneering over the last years. 
that developer environments need to be automated and ephemeral. We are now at the right place and the right time to move software development to the cloud for everybody, not just for developers working for the Googles, Facebooks or Shopify's who left local development already for several years. Gitpod is open source and provisions for every development team on GitHub, GitLab and Bitbucket cloud-powered dev environments. You can access your developer environments via upstream VS Code running on your desktop or in the browser and soon also all JetBrains IDEs. Very cool. If this gets you excited to learn more and get started for free at gitpod.io. Gitpod is free for individual developers for 50 hours a month, can be self-hosted and is available for every developer today. Again, gitpod.io. I could uh, I can keep going down the layers of of next, but I, I do want to take a turn because you know what I'll mention it just because I have to. So I don't develop websites for customers anymore, right? But years and years ago, I can remember when I was deploying websites with WordPress ten years ago, even or whatever, or some sort of CMS that uh, you know that was the line item. That was what we sold, and. Uh, they wanted a new website. They wanted to have this ability to sort of capture, you know, their market and showcase their value. And that's what we came in and did. We understood their brand. In some cases, it was a rebrand or it was a refinement of their brand. It was establishing their very first web presence. So this is years ago. Yep. But I can recall saying they always had this need of I need to be able to have I want to be able to change my web page. And, you know, I can recall back in those days, we, we would give that to them, but it, it was terrible because it just wasn't what I think you're delivering with Next Live, I think, or Next.js Live. I think that we wanted to, as web developers at that time, and maybe we could have, but we wanted to promise that and, and sell them that because that's what they needed, but the tools weren't evolved enough to do that. And now we're at a place where that's possible, right? Like going back in the last couple of years, we've seen things happen. You know, for example, Gitpod, for example, is a very close example of at least the developer environment being in the cloud. But that is one step removed from what you've done with Next.js Live, which is put that same power into someone who is in quotes, not a developer or less developer friendly or whatever terminology you want to use for that person. You know, we wanted to give the office manager or the executive assistant or, you know, the person next to the person who runs the company, the power to change their web pages, but failed consistently. And today I can say that you're helping people succeed with that because you are, you realize the promise essentially. Yeah. I think for the most part, we have a lot to thank to this idea of the component, right? The reason that WordPress couldn't get there, I think, is there wasn't a clear abstraction or definition between like, okay, what is it that you're going to be able to go and edit, right? Is everything just like a continuum of code? Or have you been able to break it down into the right building blocks, the right Lego pieces that allow anybody in the world to understand the construction process? This is what I think our technology is ultimately allowing, right? There's a universality to this concept that is fascinating to ponder, I think, because anybody can develop. Yeah. Just like anybody could sit down and build amazing things out of Legos, right? Now, 
it's fine that there's going to be the folks that can create the new types of pieces and can understand the how you even get to the primitives that you're handing off to the person that's building something. For sure, you know, there's going to be engineers that work on all the layers down and they will continue to thrive. But I do think that the world is overdue for a transformation of making building really more accessible, more approachable. And we're very, very happy that we have an opportunity to contribute to that. Yeah, something that you had said when we talked about your goals for your future. So prior to doing these episodes, I ask a few questions to sort of prime the conversation. Not all the material makes it into the show, but a lot of it helps me understand your mindset, your frame of reference and whatnot. One of the ones I ask you is, what are your goals for the future? And you said there's a very unique opportunity to turn a lot more people into authors of the web. Yes. So what I mean by this is that the web has succeeded in making everyone be able to consume it really easily. I would assume you'd go on and say more about making the web, but, you know, kind of focusing on this opportunity to turn a lot of people into authors of the web. And I, that to me is super cool because you, you think of a creator. You might think, okay, well, that's a YouTuber or that's a TikToker or, you know, someone who does TikTok or whatever. However you frame those. And the web is sort of this place where we haven't really thought about enabling more authors. We think of them just simply as developers. Not that developers aren't cool because they, of course, are, but this idea of enabling a lot more people to author the web, I think, is a pretty astounding thing. Awesome. One thing I want to talk to you about is you mentioned how you think about frameworks. And what I often want to know is how do you know how to think, Guillermo, essentially? Do you have a CEO coach? Are you just very smart? Do you read lots of books? You know, what is your ingestion of knowledge? Where do you get wisdom poured into you? How do you get to thinking the way you think, essentially? I would say I've developed the privilege of being able to ask lots of questions. And I mentioned that that's a privilege because of many reasons. Obviously, I've had the support of our entire community and investors and creating really awesome networks of people that you can ask questions to. But the other way in that that's a privilege, I think, is it relates to actually what you mentioned about imposter syndrome. Because I've gotten to the point where asking questions becomes easier in so many ways, right? I think asking a question can have the opposite effect for a lot of you because it, you're trying to unblock yourself, unlock, learn. But sometimes it can be like, well, if I ask that question it creates more doubt. It creates internal questions about like how you're going to be perceived, for example. So I evolved through asking lots of questions, coaches, advisors, investors, customers, ask a way to really learn. And I mean, there is something quite primordial there, I would say. Mm -hmm. It's ask and you shall receive. I think I found that it's been true for us. Uh, obviously, it's not always easy and you have to also find the right people to ask the questions to, but the information is there and it's a very open world and you'd be surprised about how much possibility is just one question away to the right person. I, I actually even spend time still answering cold emails here and there. Obviously they're, they are getting to the point where there are way too many, but I appreciate people's willingness to ask either for help or for information or, or really whatever they need. And yeah, that's a, that's a primary framework there. It sounds mm. deceptively simple, but as you pointed out before, 
it can be quite hard. And and also a simple framework I have here too is that there can only be one priority, right? If you have multiple priorities, then you've broken the rule or you've you've broken the word or the semantics of the word, right? So there can only be one thing. And as the machine becomes more complex, as more and more people join the ecosystem or the company, et cetera, you have to be very clear in what you say or where you ask and what you prioritize. So there can only be one thing. And that means that your question is very valuable as well and that you might want to spend the most amount of time and energy possible in preparing correctly as well. Are there any habits that you think you have or you know you have that are sort of like, these are my secret sauce? Think about habits for me, and I'm, I'm like, you know, just spending time with my family is oddly a weird productive habit for me because, you know, you wouldn't think that would be a habit. Like, I love my family a lot, and I need them, right? And so I prioritize spending my time with them. And for me, like, that's what gives me the energy to be able to step away when necessary, which is obviously it's a job. You know, I do what I do, but, you know, I have to prioritize my time with them. So that's one of my sort of like, wouldn't really call it a habit necessarily, but I think of it as a habit because I, I need to spend that time with them. I'm curious if you've thought through any specific habits for yourself that help you be as strong as you are in the day to day. It's cliche, but I have to say exercise and meditation, mm -hmm. which I consider to be a continuum because for me, running for long periods of time, I enter a meditative state and I'm able to think through and solve problems. I'm by nature, I should say, a quite competitive person. I really enjoy competition through exercise and like just running and try to be faster or I don't know, doing doing some new thing that I couldn't do before. So I'm very much competitive by nature. I think sports and exercise create awesome frameworks for a competition that I, I just enjoy. Going back to preparing the right question or deciding the next priority, I think that's nearly impossible to do without prolonged meditation. And I'm not talking just about meditation of the kind of I'm sitting under a tree in the Himalayas. I'm talking about even just sitting down and thinking. Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer in background asynchronous work, not because I work, work my entire career with JavaScript, but I'm a big believer that when you configure the right question for yourself, an internal question like, what should I learn next? The answer can be produced asynchronously through doing other activities, like spending time with your family or exercising or walking around or reading a book. In fact, I always notice that I'm reading a book and I always catch myself not reading the book. <laughs> like That's why I actually don't read books because I'm like, it's a performative action of I sit down and I look at the page. And sometimes if the book is really good, I do get into the book. But for the most part, my mind goes into that background processing of other things to do. And I find that awesome. It happens with dreams as well for me, where a lot of my thinking also happens at night while I sleep. So yeah, staying healthy and connected is, I think, the number one priority from which everything 
everything is downstream from that, I think, ultimately. Mm-hmm. Everything's downstream from health. There's this awesome, a lot of people think it's corny and weird, but and I think I would agree to some extent as well, but the SoftBank deck of their vision fund, what I think is awesome about it is that it explains in very simple terms what their ideal of the future is and how they're going to invest to make that future happen. And it has this like slide that says, for us, it's all about making people happy and removing suffering from the world. I think it, it is as simple as that. It's about prioritizing happiness, which is not necessarily defined by joy. It can also be defined by challenge and competition and some amount of stress in terms of becoming better and achieving an award at the end. I like those to stick to those simple things. Yeah. You mentioned uh, meditation. And I think an alternate word I might consider based upon your definition would be contemplation. Yeah, that's great. Back in uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt's day, you know, the early pioneers of our country here in the United States, there's a few well-known entrepreneurs that really pioneered what entrepreneurship is, early entrepreneurs essentially. And this is a day when they didn't have Next.js Live (laughs) or the internet or an iPhone in their pocket, right? They didn't have all these, one, possibilities and opportunities, but at the same time, to some degree, quite a distraction to send a message to their manager on a thing they were building. They would literally have to send a, a person with a message days on end to deliver that message and they would wait for it to come back. And so in between that latency, they would have room. Yeah room for thinking, room for contemplation. And I remember reading, because I read this, this biography, that he would just take naps, like during what we would call the work day, <laughs> yeah. right? Like just take a nap. Yeah. Because he could, you know, not because he could, because he was so powerful, but like that's just the nature. That was doing business. That was working, taking a nap and contemplating. Yeah, I cannot possibly agree more with that sentiment because I think the internet has made us all hyper-connected, but the benefits are not, in the places I think in which, like I think it could have been easy to say, well, we're going to be a hundred times smarter. Like when, you know, when like science fiction folks like make predictions on the future, we're all going to be super connected and we're going to be a hundred times smarter. I think we're a hundred times smarter collectively through some efficiencies that we've generated with the internet. But I think individually, the person that was in that position of deep contemplation, deep thought in a combined state of relaxation with work and good balance there and whatnot, that person competing with you today, I don't know if you're better with your all your technology and whatnot in raw intellectual power, for example. I think I would even say certainly not. And I think in some ways our need is now to recover and claim back some of those techniques while we continue to merge with the machine <laughs> into cyberspace, right? And this is why I always emphasize exercise because it's very primitive and primordial. It's you confronted with the terrain and the elements of weather. It's like down to the metal, basically, of the compute of your body. So it's an experience that is ultimately even more necessary today, even though it's just so basic. Yeah. Well, it's been fun talking to you through product and journey frameworks, prioritization, obsession on the customer and their success, 
I mentioned earlier, congratulations for your recent Series C. Amazing next steps for you, but I'm curious where you're going from here. When you think about the horizon for either yourself personally or the horizon for Vercel, what's on that horizon? What's just over the horizon? What can you share about where you're going? I talked a lot about how I think that we're still in the early innings of, of the technology, which makes me really excited because with the post-COVID world, something nice that has come is that there is a global workforce. We're all better connected. We can all create from everywhere. We talked about how a lot has been done with the web for consumption, but not as much has been done for authoring for the web. And the web browser as a technology is in this incredible position of being both a consumption and a creation tool. I want to see that promise through, which will take us quite a bit of time, honestly, right? So it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to feel overnight once we accomplish it, of course. But <laughs> of course, yes. But I think it's, it's still going to take quite a bit of time. I think there's a lot of technology that we've built over decades that you know will continue to, to exist, just like the radio exists today. And even develop itself. Like I'm sure radio today is even better. Like I love SiriusXM, actually. So radio is awesome. And radio has not ceased to exist. But new, more innovative media have come that have grown and really cast a shadow on those technologies. My podcasts. <laughs> yes. I think <laughs> that that's going to happen with the cloud and that's going to happen with the web. Any particular examples that you can think of for the creation process? I'm curious like where you might hone in initially. So one example that I, that I think is super interesting is that technology that has been approachable for authoring for the web has also been quickly discarded, as I mentioned, right? Like, oh, there's this, like, I used, actually used to use Dreamweaver many, many, many years ago. Yeah. And I remember, again, like, you kind of outgrow it. I think we're going to create technologies very durable in that sense. I always actually point out that I would have investors years ago tell us, well, front-end is not interesting because front-end frameworks get changed every other day and whatnot. And now we actually look at reality and we see that actually like the, the choice of React, for example, for major organizations, corporations, storefronts, et cetera, in the US has been super stable, super durable. Durable like Git has been durable, right? And I think that's going to happen in, in lots of different ways. I think you see it with Shopify now taking Headless a lot more seriously and welcoming React developers worldwide to build on top of that. But I think the same is going to happen with folks that are on the authoring side, on the editing side, the folks that contribute through no code and low code. It's not that they're going to be any less of a contribution or that their work is not going to be as important or that it's going to get rewritten by a developer a year later. Perhaps even the opposite, right? Developers will start saying, well, for this simple page that I need to build, I'm going to build it entirely visually. Or I'm going to build it entirely in the web browser. I'm not going to use the power tool for this anymore. And yet, that's going to be the right decision that's likely to stay for years and years and years to come. 
at the same time, I think AI will will play a very important role here. I'm a big fan of the work that GitHub put out with better auto completion. I've always been a fan of this. I created a demo called Thought Complete back in the day where you would type and you would autocomplete from tweets that other people wrote to just like augment your cognition. I think there's going to be a lot of that going going on where we augment the developer cognition, we augment the non-developer cognition, we augment the marketer cognition in that marketers can try more things, more permutations of copy and ideas assisted by AI you can almost think of this as a website building itself, right? And we're not really far away from that. We're, we're talking, you know, maybe months, if not single-digit years. Obviously, I'm too optimistic sometimes. But the websites that build themselves are certainly coming. Uh, yes, GitHub Copilot and the opportunities there. It's a new world. It's somewhat scary, but also welcoming to some degree. Liberating. Yeah. It's Everything that's scary in a lot of cases ends up being liberating. I actually was uh, listening to this great podcast of Gary Kasparov and Lex Friedman, and he lived a very interesting first-hand experience of what it's like for AI to defeat what seemingly you had that was, first of all, unique in the entire world, because if you're rating as a chess player, but also you had what was seemingly considered for a computer to not ever be able to do. What he said in the podcast that I thought was really interesting is that, well, that's awesome that they beat us. Okay, the, the computer is getting another nine in their SLA of things that they can do that better than humans, right? So now, let's say, like, they're at 99.9. Yeah. And 10 years pass and they do, they get to 99.99. Here's the deal. The remaining 0.001, which is, human capability, now it just matters more. It's not that because there's fewer things in which you truly excel that your impact is diminished. If anything, it's the opposite. Right. Because now you're truly able to focus on your creativity. And I think ultimately that's what we're seeing with, with front-end, right? Like, okay, now you don't have to worry about the cloud at all. You might not even ever know what a server used to be or look like. You might not even understand what the infrastructure is made up of. Like the other day, I don't even know this anymore, like nor, nor maybe ever, <laughs> but like I'll give you a really good example, right? Like S3, the CTO of Amazon said, is composed of 250 microservices. And it's like, that's insane. There's 250 independent services that are making up this greater service that I interface through two API calls, get and post, patch maybe sometimes and it's just astounding and i think that's just ultimately going to happen with you know again like we're continuing to like okay now Vercel is helping at the other nine not only will you not know what file storage how it actually works now you're not going to know how a page is built and rendered in the cloud but that's awesome because now your remaining 0.001 percent is how you express your brand online, how you engage with your customers, how you choose to communicate with them, what your values are as a person doing business, how you express your identity, and all these amazing things. And like ultimately, your own product that you're building, whether it's hardware, whether it's software, how you give that service. 
in what languages, in what markets, etc. So I think it's awesome. And I think we're just going to continue in that trajectory of more and more undifferentiated work being automated and more power to you. Yeah. It sounds like a throwback to what you said earlier with meta, meta programming. It's like automating the meta. You know, like I to be a developer today, to deliver an application to the web, I don't necessarily need to know about servers. Right? And that's kind of meta. In some scenarios, it might make more sense for you to have greater granular control. But to deliver an e-commerce store, I don't really need to have that. I want to pull that into Shopify and, and use Headless or something like that. Or just go straight up Shopify. It seems like automating the uh, automating the meta. For sure. Is there anything that I haven't asked you, Guillermo? I know we've, we've always appreciated you coming on the change log and then recently JS Party. As a matter of fact, another thanks to you. We opened up this year's episode list on the change log with you. And that was uh that was a fun show, talking about the future of the web and yes. essentially where we're going with the web. That was a lot of fun. So I appreciate uh you being a staple around here. But is there anything left unsaid in this show with me today? I think we've covered plenty. It was it was a great new take. There's a whole new side that we talked about today. The only piece we didn't cover, and I'm not asking to go into this, but it's still unclear to me if Zeit is a bootstrap company or not, or what the early stages were, because it took you several years to raise. And when you raised, you changed your name. I think you may have had some seed funding, but your first Series A, five years in, essentially. Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time. We did raise some seed money, but we spent a lot of time on R&D, basically, right? So I guess looking back, I think we had a very high bar for we're going to go out and raise a Series A and truly build this out. But we had a really high bar for ourselves for, again, like this is a lifetime commitment, right? It's a very long journey. And I needed the confidence that there was something that was ambitious, but it was also working and resonating with customers. So we took our time and I'm really happy that we did. And we learned a tremendous amount through experimentation and prototyping and lots of different ideas. And then by the time we announced our new name and Vercel and, and a lot of the traction that we had built up as well, it felt like the right time. Mm. I agree. I've been enjoying watching your journey. It's been fun. The work you and the rest of your team have done make me more excited about the web. And uh, I appreciate the work you've done. And thank you for sharing your time here today and your story today and your frameworks. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Founders Top. Thanks for tuning in. Up next is Zach Smith, founder of Packet, which was acquired by Equinix and now operates as Equinix Metal to offer global interconnected bare metal at scale. Zach shared so much advice in this show. You're not going to want to miss it. On that note, if you haven't subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? Head to founderstalk.fm or the Galaxy Brand Move is to get all our shows in one single feed at changeall.com slash master. You can also get closer to the middle and make the ads disappear on all our shows at changelaw.com slash plus plus. Thank you to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder. And thank you to you for listening to the show. 
If you enjoyed it, do me a favor, share it with a friend. Word of mouth is by far the best way to help us grow our shows. That's it for this show. We'll see you in the next one.